Well, raise your hands if you are old enough to remember the 1980s, thank you, 1980s vintage television commercial for Toys R Us that featured an assortment of kids playing with loads and loads of toys. And I'm not going to sing it, but I will read the words to the song. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. They've got a million toys at Toys R Us that I can play with. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. They've got the best for so much less. You'll really flip your lid. From bikes to trains to video games, it's the biggest toy store there is. Gee whiz. I don't want to grow up, because baby, if I did, I couldn't be a Toys R Us kid. More games, more toys. Oh boy, I want to be a Toys R Us kid. How many remember? How many are YouTubing it right now? Don't tell me if you are, but you could do it later. It's a funny commercial. I was telling uh, my youngest about this commercial, because I kept humming this all morning. And I said, I'll show you the YouTube later. Um, It's funny. It's one of those commercials that like is square. That's how old it is, you know. Uh, Anyway. I remember that commercial. So I grew up in Rohnert Park uh, in the 80s, and so it was a big deal when Santa Rosa got Toys R Us. Like, I remember this. I remember driving north with my folks, seeing on the right side there off Santa Rosa Avenue this new Toys R Us thing. I had seen the commercials. Uh, In Rohnert Park, we had a nice independently owned toy store, which I frequented and loved. But uh, I tell you, it was nothing like going into Toys R Us. It really did seem like they had a million toys to play with. I mean, huge. Funny, this isn't in my notes, but um, I'm embarrassed. One of my kids, you can guess which one. Um, Several years ago now, I'm going to guess this is like around uh, 2009 or 10, um, I went to Toys R Us, which sadly is closed now uh, in Santa Rosa, um, because this, this child wanted... I knew they did. They didn't know they did, but they did. They wanted um, Taylor Swift action figure. And so I I got this child a Taylor Swift doll action figure, and uh, it was at Toys R Us. And I I remember the joy as a dad going into big Toys R Us. I hadn't been in there in years. And finding the doll section and finding Taylor Swift with the guitar, you know, and the whole thing. And Anyway, now sad, it's gone. No more Toys R Us. We're all so used to ordering everything online and returning what we don't want and all of the like. But I digress. So you can guess which kid that is uh, at another time. Um, as much as I like Toys R Us, though, and maybe some of you can relate to being a kid and, and toys and all the like, I did want to grow up. I remember enjoying childhood, enjoying playing but I looked forward to growing up. I had an older brother, and I saw what he got to do and the way life worked out when you have a job and you can buy things and afford things and the freedoms and, and all the like. I, I wanted to grow up. Uh, in fact, I remember one reason, fast-forwarding to being 18, uh, one reason I picked Biola University over the Master's College, both good schools, uh, and way down the list, not high in the importance, but, but down the list, one reason I thought... I'm going to go to Biola instead of the master's college because at the master's college, there was still a curfew in those days. And, and even though I wasn't prone to staying out till 3 a.m. and, you know, whatever, I remember thinking, if I'm 18 living in Southern California and I want to stay out, I want to stay out. I don't want to have to get permission from my RA. I want to grow up. I want to be an adult and, uh, and so on. Most of us as kids, we have a desire to grow up to mature. In fact, growth and maturity are so important to us uh, as, as people that whenever there is any form of arrested growth, arrested development, 
uh, whether it's physical, mental, social, right? We, we view it as a tragedy. We view it as something that we need to work on to remove um, any kind of barrier to growth and maturity. We, we were made too mature physically, mentally, socially, relationally. To be immature is not generally a good thing or a desired thing. And I think it goes without saying, and this is where we're headed this morning, as people made in God's image, and I'm speaking, I think, to mostly people who have responded to God's good, gracious gospel in Christ and are following Jesus, who have been born again, we were made to grow spiritually. We were made to mature spiritually. We will be immature spiritually when we are new to the faith, that is normal, just like a child, an infant, a toddler, has normal immaturities that we all expect. The same is true for a person, whether they're 10 or 30 or 50 or anywhere between, if they come to the Lord at their age, there's a season of immaturity, but we are supposed to mature. We are supposed to progress, to grow up in the faith. This morning, as we return to the book of Hebrews, we encounter some in this early church that didn't want to grow spiritually. They didn't want to grow up. They wanted to be, I don't know, not Toys R Us kids, but they wanted to be spiritual toddlers, we might say. And what the author of Hebrews does, and what we get the benefit of hearing, and this is a word to us, I believe, as well today, he offers a necessary confrontation. A necessary confrontation against their spiritual immaturity and a challenge toward their their spiritual maturity. Or as one commentator puts it, it's flat out a summons to grow up. A summons to grow up. And so, if you have a Bible this morning, I would invite you and ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to finish up 5 and dip into chapter 6, a couple of verses. We're going to firstly reorient ourselves back into Hebrews. It's been a few weeks. And then we're going to look at this sermonic letter in this text today and look at a confrontation against immaturity and a challenge to maturity. Okay, so three, three movements this morning, a reorienting to this letter, this confrontation against immaturity, and then finally a challenge to maturity. So if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 5, would you follow along as I read Hebrews 5, verse 11 through Chapter 6, verse 3. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, we want to get started by reorienting ourselves to uh, the book of Hebrews, the sermonic letter of the book of Hebrews. And you notice there in verse 11, uh, the opening words of, of this section this morning, the author says, about this we have much to say. About what, author of Hebrews, do you have much to say? Well, he has much to say about the topic of Jesus' ministry, and especially going back into chapter 5, verse 6, and verse 10, about Jesus' ministry as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has much to explain in regards to why the priesthood patterned after Melchizedek is better than that of Aaron, and he's getting there. In fact, chapter 7, which we will get to, Lord willing, in a few weeks, um, is all about that. But we have these little teasers so far in, in chapters 5 and 6 that, that Jesus is, is better than Melchizedek, that, that there's a priesthood that he is, is fashioned after, and it's like that of Melchizedek. And so he's, he says... We have much to, to explain about this, about how Jesus is not only greater than Melchizedek and so forth, but he's greater, as we might remember from chapter 1, greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than the old <clears throat> covenant, the, the priesthood. And because Jesus is greater, that's, again, that sub-theme of this letter, because he is greater, we as his followers the, the letter is, is telling us over and over in different ways to persevere, to endure, to, to keep following. And there's going to be things that come up in life, but Jesus is greater. And if he's saved you, persevere, keep on going, follow him. And one of the things the letter does, we've encountered it a few times now, uh, there's these warnings, warning passages. Hebrews has about five or six of them. And today we come to one, although really next week, is the, the gist of this kind of crucial warning um, for us. Um, but again, for today, we have this confrontation against immaturity. It's a, it's a warning in that sense. And then this, um, this challenge to, to maturity, okay? Uh, the summons to grow up. So let's, let's move into our text then this morning, verses 5 through 14, and see this confrontation against immaturity, this confrontation against immaturity. So look with me again at verse 11. About this, Melchizedek and Jesus and all of that, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, our writer says. The writer says this this Melchizedek topic uh, and Jesus' superiority, uh, there's much to say about it, and it's hard to explain. And it's not because the topic is itself hard, necessarily. Uh, We'll see how that goes in a few weeks when we get into it. Uh, It's not that these truths are necessarily like studying organic chemistry or physics or some difficult subject. No, the issue is, the issue is, it's hard for the author to explain because of their immaturity, because of their immaturity. Or as Michael Kruger says, they're spiritual toddlers. Spiritual toddlers. Everyone think for a minute of a toddler you know, and we love them. Right? That's part of development in life. It's great to be a toddler and to have that, but, but toddlers need to grow up also. There comes a time when enough of being a toddler. And these, these recipients of this letter, they were spiritually immature. They were spiritually immature. And our, our writer confronts them against this immaturity. And he says, there's things I need to explain, but it's hard. It's difficult. And again, the reason is 
their, their immaturity. Now let's note four characteristics in the text of these spiritual toddlers, and I'm indebted to Michael Kruger for his wording uh, over these four characteristics. Number one, they don't listen. It's true of a lot of toddlers in life. They don't listen. That's the first characteristic that we have here. It says in verse 11 that they have become dull of hearing. That's how the ESV translates it, dull of hearing. The CSB, Christian Standard Bible, says it like this. They are too lazy to understand. That's a bit direct. Scholars note that in the ancient world, this this word translated dull or, or lazy, it can mean all of that. It can mean dull, lazy. It can mean sluggish. It can mean a dimwit. It can mean negligent. It was used in the sphere of athletics, in fact, of a competitor who was out of shape. Who was lazy, dull, uh, sluggish, and so forth. And, and our writer here, the text says that these recipients that he's writing to, they are dull or lazy. And, and he adds to it of, of hearing. They've become lazy, sluggish, negligent, dull in their hearing. And it seems to be that he's pointing to their inattention. In, in maybe a context like this, uh, obviously it would look a lot different some 2,000 years ago, but, but, but a public proclamation that would go on, they have become dull of hearing, okay? Um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, you can flip back or just listen. In, in that first warning passage, our writer said this, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift, So he's already spoken of the need to pay attention to what has been heard and what is being proclaimed, uh, lest lest we drift from it. And now he says, you've become dull, lazy, negligent in your hearing, in your hearing. They don't listen. We can pause right away and just ask the question internally, how about us? Are we good listeners to God's word? Are we listening to what God says in his self-revelation? If you've been at Soma for a while, hopefully by now you've heard me say that about the Bible. My favorite way to describe God's word, it's God's self-revelation. This is how we get to know God primarily, first and foremost, as, as he's revealed himself to us through his word. Are we good listeners? Whether that be in church context, whether that be in our own listening, reading, are we good listeners to God's word or are we spiritual toddlers? <clears throat> Number two, the second characteristic, the recipients, these, these spiritual toddlers, they're forgetful. They're forgetful. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says, you need to be taught again these these basic principles. Uh, You can think of it as the ABCs even of of the faith. You've been taught them, but you you need it again. Like by now, he says you should be teachers, but but you need these basic things again. That that little word again is is a key pointer. They, They seem to have forgotten. They're forgetful. They had been taught amazing things, and they seemed to need for them to be taught over and over and over again. 
And they were not growing because they were letting, one, one way to think of it is, is good teaching drift in and out of their minds. And sometimes toddlers are like that, right? They, they forget. And it's a developmental thing. There's not necessarily a toddler saying, I'm going to be willful against mom, dad, and grandma and grandpa and whomever and just forget. No, toddlers forget things and they need to be reminded of things. But, but if you are a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who by this time, he says, so he knows them, you, you ought to be teachers. Like you've, you've grown up on this and in this. You need this stuff again. There, there's a problem. <clears throat> Again, we, we could think of some questions. What are we doing with what we have been heard? Are we, are we giving it back? Are we helping out in ways where we maybe teach Sunday school classes or, or, or lead things and, and share things in a, in a formal context, in an informal context? Or do we seem to continually need to go back and, and relearn things over and over again? Do we just sort of forget the things we, we have heard the third characteristic of these spiritual toddlers, we'll see at the end of verse 12 and then verse 13, and it's this, they are unskilled. Again, a normal characteristic of a toddler, uh, you need to develop, but listen to what the writer says. Uh, at the end of verse 12, he says, <clears throat> you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he or she is a child. You need milk, not solid food. Now, this metaphor for milk versus solid food, uh, it's a common one in uh, antiquity and in the ancient world. Um, it would have right away been a ready metaphor in their minds. In fact, um, it's one that's used elsewhere in the scriptures. But and we'll come to one of those in a second. But we understand this, right? Infants, they drink milk. They, they can't have solid food yet. Uh, maturing individuals do move on to solid food. Some of us parents can remember um, some of the first solid foods our, our children ate. Um, I can remember in particular one of my kids, uh, their first solid food was a piece of avocado. So that's kind of a, you know, kind of a wimpy solid, um, right, at that. But nonetheless, like that was a big deal when, when they had this piece of green mush in their mouth and, and enjoyed that. It's important. It's an important part of development. Milk is for, for immature individuals, but when you mature, you, you move on to solid, solid food. So this metaphor, as I said, um, comes up in antiquity, but we see it in other places in the Bible, and it's used differently in other places. So for example, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he speaks of milk in a very positive way. Some of you are familiar with this verse. First Peter verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I have fond memories of that verse. I can remember as a freshman at Biola. I mentioned going to Biola University earlier. I can remember taking a class, um, one of my Christian education classes, part of my major, and we read a book by famous Dallas Seminary professor Howard Hendricks, uh, and um, maybe you know that name, he famously said in this book, related to this verse, that this verse describes the attitude, appetite, and aim 
that we all need to have for God's word. Just like a baby who's got an attitude, appetite, and aim for milk, right? Attitude uh, to long for, appetite, spiritual milk, aim to grow, right? That, he said, using those three words, that's to be uh, what Peter is saying, true of us spiritually. We need to have an attitude where we want the pure milk of God's word, and we need to long for it like a, an infant so that we would, we would grow, so see, in, in Peter, in his use of the metaphor and, and analogy, milk is good, spiritual milk. It's, it's the, the purest source of, of nourishment one can get, and, and that's one way he applies that metaphor to God's word. Our writer, though, in Hebrews is, is taking a different angle, and it's not that God's word is contradicting. It's just a metaphor used two different ways. Here in Hebrews, milk versus solid food. Spiritual infancy, spiritual toddlers versus spiritual maturity. Or as one commentator summarizes, the audience of the author of Hebrews says that his readers are acting like spiritual babies. They're unconcerned with the rich, hearty foods of the adult's table. How about you and how about me? Are we unskilled He says, uh, again in this verse, um, verse 13, everyone who lives on milk only is unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's just a way of saying unskilled in God's word. Those those ABCs that they need to be taught again, the the basics, and he's going to say more about those basics in a minute, um, to, to stay only there causes you to be unskilled, unskilled. So are we unskilled with God's word, the Bible? Or are we growing in our skill? Are you a student of God's word in a way that shows maturing and growth? We, we need to be lifelong learners. Um, and, and let me just say too, we also have different gifts and abilities from the Lord. Not everyone is going to be a teacher in the church. Not everyone is going to be um, in you know, that kind of upfront role. But there's lots and lots of opportunities to share God's word with people. You never know what's going to happen when someone's going to come up to you at work, in your neighborhood, at school, and ask you a question about something because they've heard, they know, they remember that you are a Christian, and, and do you have, have an answer? Have, have you been in this long enough that by now you, you should be able to be skilled with the word for people? And again, there's times when we're not, and there's times when even, I, I, you know, I get asked plenty of things, and I say, that's a good question. Let me think and pray and do some research and I can get back to you. How's our skill? We, we should be growing in the knowledge of God and his word. And then number four, the fourth characteristic of these spiritual toddlers is that they are undiscerning. They are undiscerning. Verse 14, solid food, back to this analogy, solid food is for the mature. And then he describes it. Who are the mature? It's those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, let me just say, uh, there's some nuance there with that phrase, constant practice, um, where, where I think, I'm with, with some scholars who think, really, this isn't about practicing something over and over, but it's about your, your nature, your sta- status as, as someone who's mature. So if I would reread it slightly different. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained 
by their, their status as mature people to distinguish good from evil. So a mature person has this ability, this status. Uh, because they've matured, they, they are able then to be discerning of good from evil. Let me quote again Michael Kruger. He says this, Here's the nub of the matter. If you are an immature Christian, you cannot always separate right from wrong. If you're not a good listener, if you're selfish and forgetful, if you're not skilled in God's word, if you are not maturing, then you are susceptible to deception. You cannot distinguish good from evil very effectively, like a toddler who runs out into the street unaware of the danger. And all of us parents have that image in our head. At one point or another, our kids have bolted out being unaware. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 is an important verse that I pray we would carry heavily. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to you, or sorry, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe. That, that is a warning we need to hear. And the only way we are going to not call evil things good things, which our world does, the only way we are going to not call good things evil is, is if we are growing in our skill and our ability to handle this, this word. We, we, we have the input of our culture around us 24-7, literally, right? And, and so... There's just constant bombardment, and a lot of it is, is counter to God's word. Woe to those, and this is for God's people especially, like not just others, but woe to God's people who call evil things good things, who, who call good things evil. These spiritual toddlers are undiscerning. They, they have not matured, and they're not able to discern are you and I growing and maturing where we can discern, where, where we, we know that God's word says this? And, and again, part of maturing also means that we, we convey God's word and God's truth with grace and love, not just blasting in ungracious and unloving ways. Jesus came, John writes, full of grace and truth. Do we come literally into our families and our work and our environment and our neighborhoods full of grace and truth? And like Paul says in Ephesians, do we know how to speak the truth with love and in love? So some questions to assess. Ask yourself this. If you look back five years ago, is there a difference now? Can you see God's work in you? Are you moving closer to God, not further from God? Or again, are you serving those around you? Are you helping others to learn God's truth in official, unofficial ways? Are, are you growing in your understanding of God? Again, we need to remember that none of this growth is to earn God's, you know, smile, okay? We, we don't 
do that. We, we, we have it. We, we are God's sons and daughters through Christ. We are, we are united to him by grace. We have been saved through faith. We talked about that in Ephesians 2, two weeks ago. Not of works and, and maturing and growing is definitely a work, right? And even verse 10 from two weeks ago, that we have been created in Christ for good works. Growing and maturing is a good work. And God has prepared that, I think, for all of us if he permits. We'll see that in in a moment. But we don't do that in order to gain grace. We've got it. He's lavished it upon us. Our growth, our maturing is a response to him. God loves us too much to let us linger in a state of spiritual immaturity. And so the writer to the Hebrews challenged, or rather confronted, his hearers against their immaturity, and we need to hear this too. We need to hear this. God disciplines those he loves. God prunes. And maybe this morning there's some discipline and pruning going on. Maybe you have been in a state of immaturity, and God is saying, you need to be confronted with, with this immaturity. But not only does he uh, offer this confrontation against immaturity, but also then we have, uh, finally, number three, a challenge toward maturity. And so we get into chapter 6. Let me read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. When our author says here, let us leave the elementary doctrine, he doesn't mean that we are to leave it behind altogether. He's not saying, okay, you know, the basics of the faith, we could say the, the gospel message, the, the core gospel message that God sent his son to live the life we can't live and die for us. We don't leave it behind altogether. What, what he means is we, we build on it. We, we grow onto it. We, we, we recognize that elementary doctrines are important. We need those things. Those are foundational, but we, we don't stay there forever. We don't only focus on that. We have this whole self-revelation, two covenants or testaments, old and new, and you know Genesis to Revelation and different types of literature, and, and it takes the whole Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones has told us, parents, and then we've read it to our kids, takes the whole Bible to explain that every story whispers his name. It's all in one way or another telling this grand redemptive story. And so we need to, along with what the writer is saying to his hearers, we need to leave the elementary stuff, not, not just like forget it, but mature on, go on to maturity. I think it's noteworthy that he says, let us. He's, he's a good pastor, this, uh, this writer to the Hebrews. Remember, this is a sermonic letter. Um, and, and for him to, at this point now, say, let us, he recognizes that, that he's first in line as well, needing to hear that confrontation against immaturity, needing the challenge to maturity. And then notice this as well. He says, let us go on. Scholars and uh, grammarians point out that that verb is in the passive. How do you go on passively? One commentator suggests it's like this. It implies that it's not up to the preacher to bear the community forward, but rather it's up to God, who, will both, who, who is both the author um, 
he will both move the author, let us, right, and the community forward together in this process of maturation. We are to leave behind basic things and press on to maturity to go on, but, but we do it in this weird way that, that God is the one doing it. We, we don't cause our own growth. God, God does it. That doesn't mean we sit back literally passively and do nothing. We engage our mind, we read, we, we get enough sleep so we can think. I mean, the whole, the whole bit, but it's God that causes the growth. God causes the growth. Now, there's, there's six items listed here that, that are these foundational items that for the context of Hebrews and these first recipients of this, that they were to leave behind these elementary doctrines. Uh, six items, they're listed in pairs. Let me just kind of quickly move through this. Uh, he says in the first pair, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Some see those actually as governing the next two. Lots of debate on how some of this stuff lines up, but those are two things. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God. Then instructions about washings. Notice that's in plural, washings. Sometimes some think it refers to baptism, um, but, but baptism was a singular item. One baptism we, we have happened to us, uh, so maybe there's something else in his mind, but that's foundational, instructions about washings and laying on of hands. And then the third pair, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So again, scholars help us uh, weigh some of these things out. What we can learn is that the early church, these early Christians, they borrowed from Judaism, right? Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, and uh, and, and borrowing from Judaism, uh, they practiced catechism, and it seems that catechism was part of the instruction that these new Christians did as well. There were kind of key things to aid in memorizing and growing in. Uh, and, and so you have some of these things that are basic uh, cornerstones of the Jewish faith, um, but also are very much bedrock of the Christian faith. I mean, the Christian faith begins with repentance, leaving aside dead works, right? Um, things that we try to do to earn God's favor, and we leave that behind, and we have faith. We, and that's the Christian life, faith and trust. That's definitely foundational and, and, and whatnot. Um, it seems that uh, here the second pair, uh, and these instructions about washings and these laying on of hands, uh, again, as I said, it, it's possibly a reference to baptism and kind of the entrance into the church. But in fact, in Hebrews, we'll get to it in chapter 9 and chapter 10, there's lots of reference to ceremonial cleansings that uh, took place under the Old Covenant and how, again, all of that was pointing forward. And so one of the things scholars say is that the recipients to the Hebrews, uh, this, this letter, they, they were wanting to kind of veer back into Judaism. And, and the author is saying, no, like, leave those things. Like, they, they lay a foundation, they laid a foundation for you, but you, you don't need to do those washings, that stuff that was part of the Old Way And in fact, laying on of hands, um, again, is used throughout the book of Acts. Um, it would often accompany baptism, but often, and we'll see it in Hebrews, the practice of laying on of hands speaks of the covenant system, the sacrificial system. The priests would lay their hands on the sacrifices and all those things, the scapegoat. And, and, and again, that foreshadows the, the truth of, of Christ and so on. Well, the third pair, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, again, uh, the Christian's understanding of the fact that Jesus will come again. He, he, he will come um, to judge the world, and, and those who love him will spend eternity with him. There is going to be resurrection and judgment, eternal judgment. So those are core doctrines. They are. 
And these are things every Christian, however um, mature or immature, ought to know some basic things. And our author says, don't stop there. Don't stop there. Again, this is a challenge to maturity. So again, are we honestly appraising our own maturing? Think in your own mind, in, in what ways maybe are you still like a spiritual toddler, stuck in, in some things that you need to move past and you need to grow? That we're going to see next week, Lord willing, in really the crux of this warning passage, there, there's a danger to apostasy. That's a big kind of theological word, and, and we'll roll up our sleeves next week and get into it. But to set us up, are we progressing in things to make sure we aren't in danger of apostasy? What concrete steps can you take to move beyond the ABCs of the Christian faith? Again, we don't leave them behind as and never think about them, but there is so much more. There's so much more. And then verse 3. In conclusion, I love this, I love this. The writer says, and this we will do if God permits. I mean, all week I just kept saying, Lord, please, in my life, would you permit me to move out of immaturity in areas where I am immature? Would you, I beg you, permit me to mature? And I've been praying that for us as a church. This we will do. We will take this challenge to maturity if God permits and, and you might go, well, why wouldn't God permit that? Why does he even say that? Well, that, that brings up a whole question we could spend a couple of hours thinking on. And, and maybe I'll, I'll do it this way. Why, why is it that sometimes God hides his face from his people? The Old Testament and the Psalms especially speak of that over and over again. God, you're, you're hiding yourself from us. And yet we know theologically that his presence is with us always. I was just talking with one of my kids about the gospel of Matthew. Matthew begins with Jesus coming, and it says that his name will be called Emmanuel, and it means God with us. And then Matthew ends with Jesus saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a key theme, these bookends to Matthew. He is with us always. But his, his manifest presence, his experienced presence, sometimes God withdraws it, hides from us. Why? Well, that's another topic, a coffee we can have. One of the things I've discovered from the the Word and from my own life with the Lord is so that I'll seek Him even more, so that I'll pursue Him, so that I'll ask some questions. Lord, you're with me, but I don't don't feel you. and, And it's not Him. When I don't feel Him, it's not Him. And this we will do. If God permits, and God may have his reasons for having us be in a season where it doesn't seem like we're growing. So, so are you pursuing that? Why, God? Why does it seem like you're not permitting me to grow? But again, pray, Lord, please permit it. And I'm praying that it will be true for us as a church. Let's grow. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that one of the things I want us to do in our gathering is to incorporate the Heidelberg Catechism. I had every intention, I don't know, two weeks ago after we started with Lord's Day 1, what is our only hope in life and death, that we are not our own but belong body and soul, we said uh, to the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, to, uh, 
to, to provide some, some instruction and teaching. Um, raise your hand if you grew up in a context where you had either the Heidelberg Catechism or Westminster. Um, not very many of us, okay? I, I'm gathering by the hands that didn't go up. Uh, I, I didn't either. Those aren't uh, my, my roots. Uh, but again, even as these early Christians uh, seem to have borrowed from some of the catechism of their Jewish faith, uh, there are amazing documents that were written after the Reformation, especially to, to help God's people understand the basics of the Christian faith and um, the Heidelberg Catechism. And I will send out some things this week, Lord willing, um, and for you to read, and it's online and, and so on. Um, it, it has this series of 52 Lord's Day uh, sets of questions, and sometimes there's a few in there, and sometimes there's less, but it basically, in, in, in quick summary, takes you through, um, like the book of Romans is one of the ways the Heidelberg Catechism is laid out to kind of cover the teaching of Romans. It, it covers truths of the Ten Commandments, truths of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, again, it's just a way to, to be instructive, and I hope and pray to help us in our maturing. So if you'd look up at the screen... As we're thinking about growing and maturing and, and taking God up on this challenge to uh, and toward spiritual maturity, we're going to do the Lord's Day three questions together. And it's, I apologize, a little small maybe on the screen, um, depending on how far back in the cheap seats you are. Um, but there's three questions. Six, seven, eight are part of Lord's Day three. So I will ask the question. It's uh, we've got the little cue, and it's in italics, and then let's all respond together, and I'll comment a little bit after this, and then we, we will dismiss. Did God create people so wicked and perverse? No. God created them good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does this corrupt human nature come from? Let me just pause. So that was set up in Lord's Day 2, and I wasn't here last week to to get there with you, speaking of our, our sin nature. So where then does this corrupt human nature come from? Answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Now, hopefully there's some questions going on. Wow, that's kind of harsh. So corrupt, yes, we are, really? Uh, uh, you know, what, what is this getting at? And, and, and these are good questions. And I implore you, do some reading this week. And as I said, I will send out through uh, communication some, some reading on Heidelberg Catechism, you can understand. But, but notice, what this is summarizing is, is this truth, that, that yes, we, and, and little Lydia is adorably cute, but she's spiritually dead. And we saw that in Ephesians 2, two weeks ago. And it's the teaching of the scriptures that, that we come into this world alienated from God, spiritually dead, in darkness. And unless we are born again, we stay in that darkness. And so there's hope. There's hope in this that God will do a work that only he can do. 
And yes, we are image bearers, and, and image bearers that don't know Christ do lots of good things. The, the so corrupt, unable to do any good, inclined toward evil, that, that's speaking of the fact that the good things that people do, they don't get themselves to God by those things. So unbelievers do things that are amazing and come up with scientific breakthroughs and medicine breakthroughs and, and, and on and on and on, do good for the world. But those things, as, as humanly good as they are, they don't get them to God. So no one can boast. We are his workmanship, saved by grace, so that we don't boast. That, that's what the catechism is talking about. Not, not that good things aren't happened, but those good things don't get you any closer to God, or as theologians call it, total depravity or radical depravity. We are radically depraved. Even the good we do, we don't do it for the praise of God's glory unless he's done a work in us. See, that's where the others are going. So hopefully you, you go, okay, yeah, that, I, I better trust Paul maybe. That, that's what the Bible teaches and that's what Heidelberg teaches, but is that in the scriptures and where, where stands it written? And so grow on to maturity. Take Take me up on this challenge to, I want to investigate this, and I want to read, and if I disagree, I'm going to have some conversations. So that's one way we will grow through the Lord's Day gatherings is this catechism, and we will read it in some different ways. One other thing I want to mention that's coming, uh, not until February, uh, but I, I have this idea. I want to take the last Sunday night of the month and have a gathering called Sunday Night Theology, where we can can gather again here, take care of our kids, have some child care, and do it again once a month, and, and invest our minds into some topic of theology or, or the like. And, and I have a few different things in mind I'm still trying to decide upon, and again, we're not starting until February, but it, that would be a wonderful way to grow and to learn. I'm going to have some reading assignments that you would do ahead of time, and we'll, we'll listen to some speakers, maybe locally or through video, but, but we want to press on, if the Lord wills, to maturity. Now, what I want to do to end this morning is have you stand, and I'm going to offer our benediction, but I'm going to do a little differently than, than normal. Normally, the benediction I offer is from Numbers 6, the Lord bless you and keep you, and I still want him to, <laughs> and I want him to make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and to lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. But as I, again, was thinking about not being here last week and and last week following two weeks ago when we were in Ephesians 2, uh, that that last verse, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, if we are his sons and daughters, if grace has saved us, we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. Or as I said, we are a masterpiece, the work of a master craftsman. And so today, the benediction I want to give uh, is toward that, that truth. And I want especially us to think, Lord, uh, if I'm your masterpiece, the work of you as a master craftsman, it seems that from today's sermon, a good work you've prepared is for me to grow, if you permit and if you do it. And so toward that end, The benediction I have in mind is from Psalm chapter 90. Let me read the verse and then I will offer it as a benediction. Psalm 90 verse 17 says, Let the favor or the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. 
and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so I have two things in mind with this benediction. As it's still a new year, I so want the beauty and favor of God to be on all of you. In your work, if you go to work, in your school, if you go to school, in your homes, if you are in a home, in your neighborhoods, I, I want the favor and beauty of God to be upon you as you do, you know, what you do, your, your waking hours every day. So that's one piece of it in this new year, may he establish whatever work you do. But then the other piece is, may a work be God, would you permit that we grow, that we grow on, move on to maturity, would you establish that in us? So I offer as our benediction before a donut and coffee that the Lord would have his beauty and favor be upon us and rest on you and that that he would establish your work, that work to grow into maturity, that work of living where he's called you to live and serving where he's called you to serve and to be his mouthpiece on mission, wherever that may be. May that be true. May that be true for his fame, for his glory. I ask and pray in Jesus' name. You are dismissed.